0: 617, to of shots fired. The Coroner Talk Podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source.
1: Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk. As you know... We are still the only podcast in Attones dedicated strictly to the people working in the field of death investigation. Now, I say that every week, sometimes out of habit, but also to let you know if you're a new listener, that we uh, are the only one that actually is dedicated to death investigators. There's some fantastic police podcasts, some fantastic fire podcasts out there. And then, of course, there's several true murder podcasts. I've been on a couple of them weighing in on some cases that they're working on. Some of them are about books. Some of them are about actual cases cold cases, it's being broke down, things like that. But as far as a podcast dedicated to the men and women who work death investigation and those supporting roles, we are it. Now, I'm not actually suggesting someone else needs to go out and make another one. But if someone wants to, I'll certainly help them all that I can, because I believe training is number one. And we all again, our podcast says that we are a peer to peer training environment. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Many of you have been on the show. And I want to invite you as well. If you have something to teach, something to talk about, a topic to weigh into, I would love to have you on the show. I uh, have a lot of people that's on the show now. We've got some schedule coming up and so I look forward to having them on the show but I want to give the opportunity to you if you have something to share. Today we're going to talk to Julio Estrada and Paul Parker. Now, you remember Paul Parker. he has been on the show several times, and and he was the assistant coroner in... Clark County, Las Vegas. He's now back in San Diego, but he's going to be on the show with Julio Estrada. We're going to talk about external body exam and talk about why to do them on the scene, how to do them on the scene. And we're going to have a lot of notes in the show notes that you can look at and, and some things that we'll offer you. So it's going to be a really a great episode, kind of a long episode because it's kind of a panel discussion and we really get into a lot of questions and a lot of things. Only one training announcement today. Uh, We have sent some information out about the Medical Legal Death Investigation Level 1 course. That is going to be in Missouri on March 19th, 2018, 19 through 21. It will be in our new academy facility. So if you want to come and see our new facility, be the first uh, class in there, that would be fantastic. But you can go to cornertalk.com forward slash MLDI. Cornertalk.com slash MLDI, and you can find all the information there. And also, if you go to cornertalk.com, if you've been there before, if you go back, you'll see there's just a little bit of a new look. We've updated the website. It's maybe more easily navigated, but it certainly does look great. And so, I think Angie, who of course you have been on the show, you know, Angie, she has helped us a lot. She works in the studio uh, on Facebook things, media. She emails you. She just does a lot of stuff with the Academy and with Corner Talk Podcast. So, again, Angie, thank you for the update for the website. It is fantastic. Okay, and, of course, also, we have all the online courses. If you're new to the show, you might not have know about the online courses. Go check those out, cornertalk.com. You can go to the Learning tab and find all about the online courses, even the full Academy, which will start again in April. I'll keep you posted on all of that, so again, today we're going to talk about external body exams, documenting why, medical terminology, some things that actually got some of us in trouble, uh, maybe we have failed at, uh, we got stumped on some things, and then some things that we've been successful at to help you learn from all of that. So it does get into some pretty uh, interesting topics today. So without any further delay, let's get right into that conversation with Julio and Paul adjust your earbuds turn up those speakers and hang on it's now time for this week's featured conversation all right joining me today as i said in pre-roll is Paul parker and julio uh, estrada and i'm sure i probably messed that up but uh, guys welcome to the show it's a pleasure having you paul why don't you take just a second you obviously are no stranger to the show but take a second kind of tell us who you are where you're from and what you're bringing to the table today
0: Thanks for having me, Darren. Good afternoon, Darren. Good afternoon, Julio. My name is Paul Parker, and I've been in either law enforcement or death investigation for over 25 years. I've been the chief investigator in two of the largest counties in the country, whether it's San Diego or Maricopa. Also the director of a growing county in Phoenix and Tucson. I've had my own business, Parker Medical Legal Services, where we provide consultation to medical examiner and coroner offices across the country for best practices, policy and procedure formulation, and things along those lines.
1: Awesome. Yes. And you do a great job at it. I understand your business is growing and and, uh, you are well sought after and, you know, rightfully so. Julio, welcome to the show today. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you bring to the table.
2: Hello. My name is Julio Estrada. I've been uh, an investigator with the Medical Examiner's Office in the County of San Diego for the last 18 years. I've been the supervisor or somehow a a supervisor in the last 10 years. I... uh, We are the equivalent of the quarter's Office for the rest of the state of California, and uh, I currently uh, manage the uh, investigative division.
1: All right. Awesome. So, um, obviously, you've been at this for many years, and you're no stranger. So, uh, I think we're going to have a well-rounded team today. Um, uh, So, anyway, for those of you that's listening on the audio only, of course, we do have a live Periscope going at the same time here, and so there may be... um, You may hear me interact with Periscope a little bit. You don't hear that normally on the audio podcast. Of course, here at Corner Talk, we try to do something new all the time. So uh, you may uh, hear us ask some questions uh, that come in from from Periscope. So let's get the conversation started today. Today, of course, as I introduce, we're going to be talking about body exams and the importance of doing a body exams at the scene. And all three of us on the panel today probably have, uh, I don't think uh, using the word thousands would probably be an understatement of how many body exams we've done. But of those, I'm sure we've screwed up a lot. So uh, I want to kind of go back and and talk about how to do it it right sometimes. So, uh, Hulu, let's start with you. Let's just identify what do we mean by doing an external body exam? And I'm talking about prior to post or prior to autopsy. Uh, What is that, and initially, why is it important?
2: Well, if you think about it, as an investigator, we rely a lot on what others are telling us. We uh, respond to the scene. We interview the uh, detectives, sometimes the uh, the field officer, uh, deputies, and we get all the information that they already gathered. The medical examiner investigator work specifically to the body exam is unique. It stands alone. In a court, that will be the only independent statement that the investigator will be able to provide. For the most part, everything is secondhand to a way of spectating. The other uh, reason why this is important is because we still want to believe that everything we do is for the families. One of the many things, many of the questions they ask boil to one thing when did the person die? We, as investigators, as first responders to the death scene, we have the privilege to have that first hand information. We can tell families our initial assessment consistent with the last time the person was seen alive. When the body gets to the autopsy suite, there have been a lot of changes already. That lividity, that rigor mortis, and that initial decomposition, the temperature that you see initially, it's already gone. You are the only one with that information.
1: Right, and, and by the documentation, again, things can be changed. I've talked a lot about um, collecting trace and doing things at the scene because the transportation of the body changes a lot of things on that body. And us as investigators first on the scene see all of that first. Uh, Paul, initial, initial comment on that, weigh in.
0: Well, I, I don't know how I'm going to be able to, to add to what Julio said. He pretty much covered the entire topic right there with his thorough response. I will say that I learned uh, body examination from Julio Estrada about 15 years ago. He is the one who taught me what to look for at scenes. He is the one that taught me the head-to-toe analysis. And as he so rightly said, and one of the things that I make sure that when I'm putting on classes for law enforcement— Interestingly enough, as Julio has pointed out, lividity, rigidity, and the temperature to touch and stages of decomp that are at the scene, they may be briefly noted as far as maybe what the body looks like in the law enforcement report, but let's be honest. How many, and I could be wrong, but how many law enforcement reports have that lividity glanced under light fingertip pressure, that the body was cold to the touch? that rigidity was noted in the jaw and not anywhere else. These are things that are extremely important to go down to that initial date and time of death, which is what the forensic pathologists always seem to be asked first on the stand. So the, the assessment of the body at the scene is probably out. It is from the forensic pathology standpoint, the most critical thing that we do as death investigators uh, and deputy partners.
1: Right. Which is, which is because, uh, As we've had on the show before, pathologists cannot work in a vacuum. They need to know what we know. Uh, We had a question come in off the Periscope show here, and it says, "Does uh, she said Does this put a lot of pressure on us to do a very thorough job at the scene?"
2: I think it's part of responsibility. Sorry, Paul. I think that a good investigator will have that initial training, basic training, in order to follow with that uh, mandate that we have by law to fully examine the body. It is a responsibility, and I'm very, very proud to say that I do a a thorough body examination. And it's the same thing that I expect from the team that I supervise.
0: And to add on to what Julio said, in reference to your question, it's critical. It does put a lot of pressure on us, but quite frankly, what puts much more pressure on us, adds to the pressure, is when we are called to the scene five hours after the body has been found or pronounced dead, while law enforcement is rightly doing their thing. But when you have a body, for example, outside, and we're not even aware that the body exists until 12 hours later, then when we get there, we are then tasked with doing this assessment. And at that point, things are going to be a lot different than they would have been had we been able to get out there five, six, seven, eight hours earlier. So that adds to the pressure. And one of the things when I learned, I will never forget the first homicide that I missed. I'm, I I will never forget it. It was a lady who was face down, in a hotel room in San Diego County, I went with a with an experienced investigator, and I missed it. I could have been more thorough. And so from that point forward, I was extremely thorough, head to toe. And luckily, it was caught during the exam. But that was 24 hours later, enough time for suspects to do whatever suspects do in a 24 hour time period.
1: Right. And I know I missed one similarly in my career, and it'll never happen again. Um, but... Uh... You know, and again, to to weigh in on her question was, does it put a lot of pressure on us? Yes, it does. However, if you are a good investigator, medical legal investigator, coroner, a lot of coroners work the same job as a medical legal investigator. Some don't. But if we're going to do the right job, then, yeah, it does put pressure on us. But that pressure is what causes us to do the right job. And if and I've said this before, if you're not willing to take the time to do it right then you might need to either take a vacation or find a new career because these are, these are, these are people's moms, dads, brothers, sisters. These are, this is somebody that has died. And we, you as investigators, speak for those pre- people that are already dead. And if you're not willing to take the time to slow down and do it, now here's the other thing. It takes cooperation from, like you said, Paul, five hours later, you're finally called to a scene. It takes cooperation by law enforcement to get you there sooner. And it takes, um, uh, You know some conversation with them as to what you know what needs to be done and of course uh it takes it takes some proper training so um and and Teresa uh from forensic unlimited said got to find the truth and that's right we have to find the truth for the decedent so so let's move on here um let's talk about a systematic approach um we know head to toe but uh let's talk about start with the head this is a training podcast i want to i want to tell our listeners What do we do from the top of the head starting down? Um, Paul, this time you weigh in first. Uh, Coming from the top of the head, uh, the least down to the shoulders, where do we start and what are we looking for and how are we doing it? Well, the first
0: thing we want to do is, is do not forget before we start touching anything is we want to do photographs. We're going to take our photographs from out back, you know, as you know, the whole scene and then as we move forward before we touch anything, what I was trained to do was to basically section the body into three different parts, you know, head, neck, chest, abdomen area, and then pelvis and legs. And then additional photos as you move your way down again, before you touch anything, having done that, then I started the head and palpate. One of the things that's amazing to me and I found amazing was sometimes there are some um, death investigators that I've had the opportunity to work with that never touched the body. Like they'd go to the scene, take their photos, And the only time that the body was touched was when either the contract removal service or they themselves, if they were responsible for pouching the body, that's the only time they touched the body. And then so I want to make sure that we do have to understand that when we get to these scenes, we have to touch the body. So I start with the head, palpate the head, see what comes off, uh, you know, within the glove. I mean, there may be blood that comes out from hair, especially if there's a lot of hair and you can't really see what's going on and then go down. And I oftentimes palpated the cheeks and the nasal bones. I would never stick a finger in any kind of defect. We've heard that happening before, whether it's a an apparent GSW or something along those lines. But to note any kind of, from the side, front, and from the side, any kind of damage or anything that looks like maybe natural disease processing, we can talk about that later, whether they're ear, earlobe creasing, arcus senilis, things along those
1: lines. Yeah, Julio, add to that. What else, uh, what else are we looking for and how?
2: I would like to back up a little bit. Uh, sometimes we get to comfortable when we respond to the scene, especially when we have a large case load. So we are told that you're dealing with a natural death, and we just assume all that. It is very important that uh, we need to start with the quarter of the body, the location, body fluids, insect activity, even before I've taken the photographs. That is very important. That will tell us also a lot of information regarding the time of death. Uh, this uh, visual inspection starts with the position of the body, what's next to the body, What what is um, on top of the body. I remember rolling with uh, Paul one time, we had that case in the East County, he took great pictures of this gentleman who lost control of his car he got pressed with the door and the car frame, LRB, and uh, those pictures are still being used as streaming at the office. So there you go, Paul. The, uh, there's also one thing before we start the, uh, the uh, to take pictures, we're doing this now, we're using a photo card. This is a plastic card where you put the name of the disease, date, any possibility that might help us identify not only the case, but the person. These pictures potentially can end up in court and nothing like documented everything with style. So, um, including this patient and, and uh, before the attaching of the body, make sure that you look for the pigmentation of the body. The person can be yellow, the person can be even pink. That's just a number of things. The yellowish can be liver disease, can be some alcoholic. Together with a lot of blood disease, that can tell us that we're not dealing with a homicide but a person who has so severe liver disease through alcohol that he's vomiting partially digested blood. And a lot of times officers might confuse this with a homicide. So, um, you know, a number of things. Uh, Also, um, this is the time where you start documenting these important postmortem changes. Remember, the question number one for families: when did my loved one die? So this is when you can tell them about this uh, divinity and where it's located, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Right, and then of course, as we go down, go down the head, and we're checking for changes in the eye and in the sclera and different things. Of course, I, I always try, depending on the case, I guess, but you know, you can, you can move the head and neck around to see if you might have a basal skull fracture, if there's any broken bones of the neck, things like that. Um, I do that on all cases just because I, I'm systematic from head to toe. So if, if, if I don't, I try not to go in with a preconceived idea. Now, if I'm there on an apparent shooting and there's a, bullet hole in their head I, I i guess you're kind of preconceived a little bit but i still do my exam the same because i want to know is was you know is the neck broken and, and and things like that and and like and like paul said i you know check in nose i've got a document what do i see in the nose what do i see in the mouth do i see blood in the ears um what are the condition of the eyes you know do do i see any other bruising or or things like that uh, of course, uh, let me give a caveat here. We we never want to say that uh, uh, if we see a defect on the body that was an entrance wound or an exit wound, we can say it appears to be this or it's consistent with possibly depending on. But but never say what it is. It's very embarrassing to say uh, that you have an entrance wound and an exit wound. And then the pathologist um, reflects the skull and realizes, oh, wait a minute, you were wrong. That's kind of embarrassing. So, yeah, always just document them as as um, as um defects so Absolutely. so as we go down we're, we're you know now now you know we've kind of got the neck structure all of the head structure now we're into the shoulders and the torso area what's the best systematic approach there you know you've got two arms and then you've got a a front and the back and and i'm going to comment on this somebody on on periscope said you know establish your investigative steps and then follow them every single time that way you don't miss anything if you do the exact same thing every time that's that's what i was getting at is uh, and I'm glad you pointed that out, is that you won't make a mistake if you do it every time, even if you don't think it's necessary. But So, we're down to the shoulders. We got two arms. Uh, well, of course, we got front and back. So, what's our, what's our next step there? At that, some point, we're going to have to maybe move some arms, move some body parts, move some clothing. Now what?
0: One of the things that I always did, if I may, Julio, uh, uh, one of the things I always did was to look at the body while, while clothed, while the clothing was exactly in place, and then see if you see any defects in the soil or it could be body fluid or whatever. And then to expose the part of the body that you're now looking at. So pull the shirt up and then take your photos at that point as well. So take the photos with the shirt down and then with the shirt up. And then I always basically, there were times I would just put both hands one on one shoulder, one on the other kind of move, you know, kind of push down to see if there's any trauma there and in looking at the abdomen and the chest for any kind of scars, marks, tattoos, evidence of any kind of injury, natural disease process, anything along those lines. Because, again, one of the things we also want to make sure, one of our primary functions is to make sure that we're properly identifying these folks, and those tattoos and those scars uh, may assist us in that ultimate identification, in addition to the injuries and defects and natural disease process we're looking for to lay that foundation for forensic pathologists.
1: Right. And Julio, what are we looking for when it comes to the I know the arms and the arms, of course, scars, tattoos, things like that. But what about shoulder joints, uh, rigor mortis? What else are we looking for when it comes to arms and hands?
2: We can uh, exercise a little bit of common sense. We all know what our range of motion for our neck, our extremities is. That is also applicable to the dead person. Considering that lividity is not I mean, I'm sorry, rigidity is not fully set. We can use the same type of range of motion we have to determine if there's any fractures. If anything goes beyond that limit, that we can do it, there's something wrong with that. That's very critical for the neck. If there's some cervical spine injury, the neck will hyperextend. You can move this person's head all the way to their, like the exercise for the sake of a conversation, almost, and, and that will be a telling a tell that there is a fracture. As far as the neck, one of the critical things that you it never ever misses the ligature mark. This is the uh, first cardinal sign of a homicide. But be careful with this. If a person was uh, found outside in a grassy area, the ends uh, can mimic that and they can leave a fine line around the neck, like in a, a uh, ligature mark. So, uh, con- uh, continuing with the uh, examination of the body and uh, addressing the range of motion. You can tell if there is any subluxation, if the body is deformed. You can tell the uh, shortening of the extremities, especially the legs. That might be an important tell of a uh, fracture, especially in the elderly. As far as uh, what Paul was describing, tattoos are critical for the identification of this person. Nowadays, um, herring has becoming uh, cheaper, more affordable than other drugs. You can look for... Uh, fresh needle puncture marks. If you want to enhance a history, you can find track marks, and you can even find scar tissue in those arms. That's uh, something very important to tell us. This is part of your investigation. This will tell you what to do next to find any- One of the things I
0: might jump on to there with what Julio said, two parts. In reference to the ligature mark that he was referencing, one of the things, Darren, that you mentioned was checking the whites of the eyes, the sclera. But again, we want to look for what we didn't necessarily mention was maybe perhaps some petechia that might, uh, now there are some natural disease processes in which we can get petechia, but again, those should be a red flag. And then also in reference to the puncture marks that we was talking about, it also goes down to making sure that we put together what we're seeing on the body exam with what information we get if there was any kind of pre-hospital or medical intervention that was done, perhaps any kind of IVs just attempted to be established by medics that were unsuccessful uh, so that we can maybe correlate puncture marks uh, maybe for illicit drug use versus medical intervention
1: right and it's important for the investigator to know and understand what medical intervention procedures look like you know they need to they need to learn what these things are and and what they're going to be seen you may have an older person that was in the hospital a few days prior to their death and you've got injuries on the body that that actually are uh, a a, a very good example what was ended up being natural but he was in his mid sixties and, uh, he was sudden, unexpected death. And when I get there, he has a wound that looks not fresh, but not necessarily completely healed in his lower abdomen, uh, kind of, kind of to the, you know, to the outer part of the abdomen. And it was intriguing to me, but, but I, and I documented, it, noted it and, uh, went on with my body exam. Didn't find anything else really, uh, of any interest. Well, now I have that information. And as I'm talking to the family, I realized that, Uh, About a month ago, he got out of the hospital, and he had had uh, a a two-thirds of his colon removed, and then, of course, he had a um, stomach surgery. And I seen the scar, an older scar. The scar was more healed, but this wound that I seen was actually a drainage tube, and it drained it was just not was just not healing, and so. In comparison to the scar, where the scar was pretty well healed up, it wasn't. Uh, it was. It wasn't fresh. It was dry. It was very nice looking scar. This wound was not, and I'm so I would not have originally put those two together. Documented them, talking to family, uh, medical records prove that. But there's where you've got to be careful not to jump to conclusions of what you're finding. But do document it because it could be something. And
0: I would like to also point out in reference to what Julia was saying about looking for the scars. We touched on that. One of the things we also want to do, one of the things that seems to be kind of prevalent lately, maybe it's always been around, but one of the things that I've noticed over the last several years is we seem to have a higher incidence of seeing people with scars from cutting, uh, cutting on their legs and cutting on their arms. And I'm not just talking about perhaps previous attempts on suicide with wrist cutting and wrist scarring that we want to look at, but to look at the thigh, the inner thigh, upper thigh, and the upper arms. For uh, those signs of somebody who had recently been cutting, which could be covered completely with the clothing, I had a a twenty-one-year-old female who jumped off a bridge about a year and a half ago, and had we not done the full body exam at the scene and we just chalked up all of her injuries to the two hundred foot fall, we would have missed at the scene the when we rolled her sleeves up, number one, the tattoos, but number two, the extensive, very fresh cutting on, on her upper left arm, which led. Which drove some more of the questions that we were able to ask the family and kind of put together what they were saying as well.
1: Right. That's a very good point. Uh, Julio, let's talk a little bit about hands and fingernails. You know, before we send to autopsy, we need to be looking for these. So so what are we going to be looking for on their hands and what on and about their fingernails? One, do we need to try to identify? And then if we do identify it, how then do we collect or protect?
2: That's a very good question, actually, and he has a two-fold answer more than anything, it documents a particular kind of medical history. At the time of day, you can find this uh, discoloration that many officers confuse with uh, lividity. That's cyanosis. That's an indication that the heart was not pumping oxygenated blood. So if you find out at the scene, along with cyanosis in the chest, the person is old enough. A lot of times, families don't give you that information right there. When you get to to the first responder. So the officer relays this information to you. So when you get there, you start asking medical questions and it turns out that the person had previous heart attacks or they have concurrent heart disease. And the death was in fact expected. Two things. You can issue a wave. You can accept the case from bringing it to the office. You mention the case load for the following day. You can send the body to a funeral home. The doctor can sign the death certificate once you document that medical history. But as far as Cases coming into the scene because there's no doctor, or there are other circumstances that makes it a medical or a coroner's case. You can check that cyanosis. You can say you can check the the uh, it's a uh, uh, clubbing of the fingers that implies a congestive heart failure. That's also something that you can add to your medical examination. That in the following day that might be the definite factor to extend that shot Um, injuries, of course. Um, and there are a number of, of pathological conditions that can create different circumstances. But more more than anything, everything will be seen in the discoloration. There's, of course, arthritis, there's cases, weird cases where you can see injuries, although the pathologists don't like to use that term. You can see what we call the fence wounds there. And in the absence of any other injuries, that might be the, the point that will change the direction of your investigation.
1: Right. And when you're talking about defense wounds, um, you know, even broken fingernails, if, if I if I see somebody with a, with one or two broken fingernails, to me, that stands out because most people, if you break a nail or, or, or cut your nail, you know, that just bugs you to death. Right. It catches on everything. So you're clipping it. You're filing it. You're doing something. If you find a decedent with some broken fingernails. Uh, that could be a sign of a struggle. That could be that could be a sign of a fight or something traumatic happened that needs to be documented. And then, of course, if, if we have any case that where we think there could be a struggle or a sexual assault or anything, you know, we want to try to try to protect and collect the evidence under the fingernails. Now, normally that's done at autopsy, but we have if we've noted that and we want to protect that, we need to bag those. Uh, hands in paper not plastic and then make sure your pathologist knows um like in your case julio you work for the pathologist office so it's easy for you to tell them in my case and others i'm two hours away so i have to uh, have the body transported to them and then i have to communicate with them if i'm not going to the autopsy of what i need so we we bag we bag hands and in fact uh there was one case where i bagged feet because Uh, They were barefooted. They were in a fight. And I seen some things um, on the toenails and under the toenails that I thought was evidence. I bagged the feet. That's not normally done. Right. But it can be if you see that. And then you need to tell the pathologist. I had a question come in here on Periscope ask, what can medical staff do for us to help protect the hands and or the fingernails? You know, maybe there's an injury coming to ER, they subsequently die in the emergency room. Uh, Medical staff is there. What can medical staff do to help protect hands and fingernails?
2: That's a very good question. Actually, nowadays, as you know, death is very emotional. It brings the best, sometimes the worst of people. But being so emotional, people want to have some uh, last memento of that loved one. And hospitals nowadays, especially pediatric hospitals, they tend to take fingerprints. They take, to take actually uh, lots of hair, things like that. I think we need to educate the hospital personnel to check with us, to make sure that we're not missing any evidence before they go ahead and do that kind of stuff. I, I just want to uh, recognize how important it is, what you mentioned about the fingernails. Uh, a few years ago, one of my uh, coworkers, also a supervisor, she had a case, very interesting case. This gentleman uh, locked himself into a refrigerator. And the, uh, when the refrigerator was opened, uh, with his medical history, the case was brought in as a natural death. For gentleman, he locked himself, he got anxious, and had a heart attack. In reality, when the, the investigator went back to the scene, uh, she noted that the guy had several broken fingernails. There was evidence that uh, he was trying to open this refrigerator door from the inside, And that was the important part of this uh, decision. uh, It was not an autopsy, uh, determination of the cause of death. It was a toxicological uh, case. Uh, The person died because of the uh, lack of oxygen there. So it was a pretty interesting case. And everything stemmed from the examination of the thing.
1: Right. And and see, there's a case that that stemmed from the... From a body exam not an autopsy that that's what got led that's why it's so important for us to do what we do so let's move down a little bit okay so and then we're going to get into documentation so now you know we're down uh, at list at least to the hip area and and we've got we've got the groin and we've got both legs and feet so again whether we're clothed or not clothed what do we need to do there Paul you start us off uh, we're talking about the hips on down what did the investigator need to look for and how do we need to uh, proceed from there
0: and we're going to look for, as Julio had mentioned, that the palpation for any kind of fractures, uh, especially in motor vehicle accidents or specifically motorcycle accidents, I always grab both sides of the pelvis and push them together to see if there's any movement, push them down, check as you go down each leg. We also want to make sure when you're looking, let's not be, a, we're going to use respect. We're always going to respect the person who died. We're going to make sure that they're covered as best as possible, shielded from the view of family and, and onlookers. But we have to put our... Our uh, uncomfortability aside, and we have to look at that that area, the genital area. You got to make sure, first off, make sure nothing else is down there. Make sure no drugs. Make sure no weapons. Make sure there's no injection marks anywhere around there. We're not probing anything, but we're looking and we're photographing that specific area all the way down to the feet.
1: Now, if they've got their pants on, you know they got they got uh, blue jeans on with a belt. Uh, You know, it's generally not a practice for us at the scene to remove those pants. Right, Julio? We do the best we can uh, with the pants still on. Or have you been in cases where the investigators have removed pants for whatever reason?
2: There's been cases that it is required to remove all the clothing. There's other cases when you can pull the pants down and you can see a lot of things that Paul mentioned. One of the critical things he uh, mentioned, you can see along the femoral uh, artery, you can see puncture marks. Um, of course, we're not going to mess like he said, we're not going to uh, stick fingers where we are not supposed to. We can get too comfortable and destroy evidence of any possible sexual assault. But yes, as far as the question, we pull and we remove clothes as necessary. And everything gets documented. Keeping the decisions, uh, respect, dignity in mind. We do have different type of clothes to cover the gender.
1: Right, right. And let me, I, uh, I know, I you, go sometimes ahead.
0: We found drugs and drug paraphernalia down there as well. And uh, it's better to find it at the scene than exposing your autopsy techs and forensic pathologists to any kind of needles or anything else when they get to disrobing the body at the morgue. Warm-
1: yeah, that, yeah, that that is true. Of course, you know, the hip, the groin area, of course, that needs to be thoroughly looked at. I don't know in car accidents. Sometimes you have those, um, the, you know, those hyperextensive lacerations, especially uh, in the groin and, and, and things like that. But now we go down both legs. I know that we're looking for, bruising injuries lacerations all of that stuff on the legs uh and broken bones is there is there anything else about the legs that we need to specifically look for or just document anything that looks notable what what would you guys say about that
0: what i would say uh you've you've touched on all the main ones one of the things we do want to keep in mind uh many times we find identification in shoes, we find drugs down the socks So we do want to be taking and looking in those areas as well, not just for the tattoos that we talked about, but also those other items that we just
1: mentioned. Right. Hudo, anything to weigh in on that part? Yes. This ties up a little
2: bit with your question regarding the clothes. It is very important that we remove the shoes and the socks. Any shortening of the extremities might indicate a fracture. Any rotation, same thing. It is more evident in the elderly. Also want to go back to removing the clothes and exposing genital and other areas. Unfortunately, sadly, we have cases of child abuse, sexual child abuse. We have to turn the baby back and see if he or she is not bleeding from the rectum. It's sad to say, but it is important. We have to cover those spaces We cannot afford to lose that evidence of this. So along with the, uh, the extremities, the lower extremities, there's a lot of medical conditions. The viruses, that might indicator of liver disease, heart disease that might be consistent with people with high blood pressure and all those cases might suggest that this is a natural death. and again there is no need for us to bring the body to the world.
1: Right, I'm glad you pointed out that, that that issue of you know checking the rectum. I know that uh, this is a this is a conversation that if you go nationwide to a uh, you know pick out 20 different corners offices or medical examiner's offices, some will say disrobe some will not say disrobe. There is good and bad in both. But that stuff can be missed. There's a lot of that stuff can be missed that you see at the scene and after con, after you transport, after condensation in a cooler and you go back to another transport and get to whatever, that's missed. You, and then you don't have the documentation, um, that you need. So again, this is, this is the reason why we want to do extremely thorough documentation. I, I want to move back up again, just a little bit back to the torso. I want to talk about alga mortis and taking liver temp. I know there's liver temp and, or, or, or anal. I've never done an anal, uh, don't have any desires to do it, and the reason is is because it's too hard. I know that we we may disrobe we may move around and things like that, but a liver temp, to me, uh, 99% of the time is always easier. But I want to point out something on the liver temp. If you take a liver temp, I think this is best practice, and I'm sure it's everywhere, but maybe not. But after I take that liver temp and I document everything, I circle that wound, I indicate the temperature that I received and the time that I received it, what that tells my pathologist when it does go to autopsy, if it does, is is what that wound was. What you don't want the pathologist is to spend time trying to look at this puncture wound and actually you're the one that caused it. So anything that you do to the body, you need to document and unless there's a good reason not to, um, there's no reason not to take a, 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 a Sharpie marker or something and circle a wound or do something if it interferes with something else, use common sense. But let your pathologist know the things that you have done. I tell my paramedics if you're working a case that's, that, that's very likely not going to make it. Um, I want you to circle your puncture wounds if you if you ha- attempts. Mm-hmm. If you make two or three attempts, I want to I want you to document those attempts so that I don't get to the hospital and find that I have five puncture wounds in the arm. What am I going to think, Paul? I'm going to think track marks. Right? I don't know, but I, I you know absolutely. I want them to document that even with a circle. If they circle it, I know that 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 means something. Um, Have you guys had any experience with with those type of things of having to mark or identify the body in some way for for the pathologist?
0: I'll defer to Julio. I have not had the experience of doing liver temp. The only experience I've had in in the most recent office I worked, we did take vitreous on some cases at a scene, especially if perhaps it was going to be a, a case where the body necessarily wasn't going to be brought into the medical examiner or coroner's office. So we took photographs, obviously, of the eyes. We were going to take photographs, very good photographs, of the eyes anyway. But we would take photographs of prior to and then after uh, collecting the vitreous. So uh, that would be my only experience with with taking anything from a body and taking photographs. But as we touched on uh, before, absolutely having that education out there to the medics to circle any kind of attempts uh, for IB is very, very helpful to us.
1: Right. Julio, weigh in on vitreous. Um, why is vitreous so important? And, and in most cases, or in a lot of cases, even better than blood to take. Now, sometimes it's taken at the scene, which I have done, especially on car wrecks and things. Maybe if it's going to autopsy, I ask them to do it. But but explain what vitreous is, and then why is it important and what can it be useful for? Well, the
2: vitreous, as you know, is uh, some sort of a gelatin fluid that is inside the uh, glove, the ocular globe. It, for better than blood, it kind of uh, concentrates drugs and electrolytes that are very, very important to come up with a diagnosis. Nowadays, uh, people with diabetes, it is always best to get an accurate measure of their last uh, blood sugar level when the vitreous is examined. The uh, people who had a uh, cardiac incidence, the electrolyte imbalance can be the, the determining factor to to find out why that person had this uh, Uh, heart uh, situation, but drugs are the main concern, and and it is important, it is very critical as part of a full examination. As far as the body temperature, the core temperature, nowadays, most of the pathologists at San Diego are not using the uh, the liver temperature. In their mind, it creates some trauma, some evidence of trauma, regardless of how documented it might be. We have uh, laser thermometers, they're reliable, they're very good, actually, and uh, for the literature, everything is documented as far as how many hours have to elapse in, in, from the time of death to the time the person is dead. And there's a good uh, formula to document an approximation of the last, when the person was alive. Of course, that's within the first 24 hours. So after that, the person is just old, you know, unfortunately. But as, as far as uh, liver temperature, is not uh, being used anymore.
1: Right. And see, you brought up a good point. In San Diego County, uh, it's, liver temperatures aren't taken now but in other parts of the united states they are and and i talked i talked to my pathologist and the importance of liver temp it's not it's not exact science we all know that it, it, it's there's so much can go because of ambient temperature medication on board uh, the health of the uh, all kinds of things disease However, it is an investigative tool, and so in our case, uh, in, in in a lot of situations where we think it's been, it's been uh, a several hours anyway, we'll take the liver temp. Um, you know, does it always help? Maybe not. But but again, that was my, that's my point is that San Diego County isn't doing that, but other counties are. So when we talk about these things on the show, um, you know, it's best practices and you're going to find that some things, well, we don't do that or no, we, you don't and I do whatever. Um, Cause we have a lot of listeners out there that work in different areas. So we're not trying to set your policy, uh, but we are trying to give you some best practices, but always, always uh, talk to not only your supervising agency, but the pathologist of who will be doing your autopsies, because they're the ones that's going to actually determine how and what they want you to do, you know, at the scene. So I want to uh, we, we've got just a, a while left here. So I want to talk, talk about the documentation. So, so we went head to toe. We know what kind of look for and things like that. Uh, there are um, in our case, we use a forensic body exam. You know, it's that uh, plane exam front and back, hands down, palms out type thing. Uh, and we document wounds and injuries and, and things like that. And I want to talk a little bit about how and why and and, and terminology. So, Julio, do your office use, do your investigators use exam sheets on the scene, body exam sheets on the scene, or do you just take notes, or how do you do that?
2: One of the things that I have um, tried to develop is the uh, leadership skills. So I leave up to every investigator to develop their own system, However, I am the one who reviews every single one of the cases at the uh, office, every one of the narratives, and all the information that I require is there. Some investigators do document the findings in this diagram, and they keep that for the records. There, a lot of times the, the pathologists use them, but they repeat their own. They do their own at the autopsy. What I find interesting is the difference between what the investigator uh, developed at the scene and what the doctor has. It's always a very, very good learning tool to compare those findings. It opens dialogue, and that is always healthy. So as far as your question, yes, everybody has a different Chi Chi. and it includes the, the, uh, the uh, questions, the examination, and a diagram for most part.
1: Right, and the diagram to me is just a set of notes. Uh, I put it as part of the case file, but it helps me determine, you know, it's notes. It's, it's just notes. It's a good way of taking notes. Paul, what's been your experience with the, using diagrams?
0: Yeah, it just depends on what agency. Uh, as as well said, when I when I was in San Diego, I didn't. I just took notes. Uh, I didn't use a body diagram. Uh, Maricopa County, the investigators, at least when I was there, they have a sheet, a front and back sheet. The first side has a bunch of the demographic information, but the, the back side, the top part of the back side, is is very very good information. It was the anatomical position diagram that you discussed. It had notes and, and things to circle about things that you saw on their uh, stages of rigor lividity uh, but then also had the opportunity for the investigators to make their notes about what defects they saw what what was in place on the body when they did their body exam that information I would find would be again put into our report and I would only use that as as notes so everything I did was based on just putting the notes and, and writing a, a, a solid report to capture what I saw
1: yeah writing a solid report isn't is important you you the, the forensic diagram Uh, isn't a replacement for the summary actually you you know you should take that as as part of your notes in your memory to make the proper uh, documentation in written form in summary but if you're going to use a forensic diagram one of the things you have to really be careful of and note is whatever you're going to use let's say you want to use a certain sketch or certain scratch up to, to call an abrasion or uh, um, you know, you want to indicate a ligature, you want to indicate a defect that looks like a gunshot wound. Whatever you do, not only, you either need to label it or you need to put a key code at the bottom because you know what that means, but someone else picks up that sheet and they, they see they see lines and marks and circles. Well, is that a wound? Is that a bruise? Is that a, te- you know, what is that? You know, so so even though it's your notes, if you're going to make it part of the case file at all, you need to make sure you have a, have a key code for it. Um, which is very important. Ta- let's talk about notes. Um, uh, A question came in uh, from from our Periscope here. Do each agency have their own unique forms for documentation? Are there no standard forms? And the answer to that is there are no standard forms, save the, you know, the forensic body exam form. Yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of the standard if you use it you use it um but even those have some differences as far as depth investigation worksheets there's no standardization um you know uh between agencies it is what works best for the agency and like julio said not only what works best for the agency then the investigator themselves may actually come up with a little bit better practice uh, i do agree however that um uh, i'm a big proponent in standardization now not not standardization to the point of there's no wiggle room or exceptions because each death investigation scene is different, but standardization meaning should we, you know, how should we proceed and what kind of information be, should be documented? But is there, is, the question was, is there standardization in forms? And the answer is flatly, no, there is no standardization in forms. Um,
0: the, the, only, the only standardization in forms by each state is the death certificate. Let's be honest. That's the only form that medical examiner and coroner offices in each respective state is going to use that's the same it has been my experience i have been at agencies where there may be forms but no instructions on how to use those forms so you ha- if you have the forms as you're saying there should be some kind of key code for that form but there has to be instructions for example if you're if you are made to write a report you'd be amazed how many offices have you write a report but there are no standardized guidelines or instructions for what should be in each section of the report and what is the preferred method at that respective office.
1: Yeah, very good, which brings up another point. Let's talk about proper terminology, medical terminology. Very important to use medical terminology, but yet there's a lot of people that doesn't know all the medical terminology and all the medical terms. So, um, and, and Julio, you, you start us off here, you know, working for an ME's office directly, Uh, you're probably more involved in in medical terminology maybe than an investigator that works for a coroner's office uh, by themselves. But is proper medical terminology important or is just describing it in a common language okay? But what do you think about that?
2: I believe that it has to reflect a certain level of education and skills when you write that report. We uh, need to consider that these reports are not only for the lawyers, for the doctors, for officers, they're for the families, the families that we serve. And we're not going to include any high level, high language that they're not going to be able to understand. We have to find balance. Of course, we're not going to refer to the abdomen as the tummy, the person who has the tummy inflamed, et cetera. So we need to find some balance. I think both are okay. I think that it cannot be too common knowledge, but it has to be something that the layman can understand. I would like to back up a little bit as far as the, uh, the order of keeping documentation. One of the things that I believe we all need to keep in mind is that all the notes must be transferred to our reports. Regardless of the standardization, these these notes are subpoenaable, And if we write in certain language that we can only understand and we use some phrases that might be offensive to others, just remember those notes can be subpoenaed. So my advice is to, regardless of the standardization that you have in your department, make sure that those notes are uh, transferred to your case and then destroyed.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah. You, you blurped out just a minute there, but what you said was that those notes are transferred to your case correctly and then destroyed. And your policy is to destroy scene notes after the report, right? That is correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things
0: I'd, I'd like to touch on, if you, if, you, if it's okay, is what Julio was saying. Uh, I think more so that we have to remember who the audience is. The initial audience for our reports, yes, it's the forensic pathologist or you know, who's going to do the examination. And then... Obviously, forensic autopsy technicians, they may look at that report. Uh, Forensic toxicologists may look at that report, the folks that are running the the specimens. But ultimately, down the road, you have attorneys and media and law uh, insurance companies. But ultimately, ultimately, the family, most of the time, will get those reports. You could be the best investigator, the most competent investigator in the world. However, if your report Looks, at, looks like it was written by a first grader, and you're using terms incorrectly, and there are spelling errors all over the place, your competence level their mind is going to go through the floor. So your report is a direct reflection of your competence, and that's how come I think we, we're going to do another uh, podcast on this later down, uh, down the road, Darren.
1: Right. And, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, I can be on a scene and I can be talking about something, and I, and, and I am not probably the world's best when it comes to medical terminology. I'll lay that flat down. I'm not, however, but I'll get to be talking about something in my notes because I want to. I want to make it to my report correctly, right? So, so I may be talking about something that's inferior or distal to something. Well, nobody knows what I mean when I say that on the scene. So sometimes using those terms are kind of not necessary. And here's the other thing: if you're if you don't know what inferior to something is, or distal or proximal to something then don't use it because if you say, well, it's proximal to the mid signal line and you're totally wrong. Well, number one, you're totally wrong. Your case is wrong and you look like an idiot. Right. Was, so, so either, was, either know it or don't know it and then do your report the way you can go in and testify. Cause if you're in court and someone asks you, your lawyer asks you in court, could you explain what the distal portion is to the mid line that you said, what does that mean? And you don't know you've ruined the entire case.
0: Absolutely. That happened to me. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I learned the hard way when I was in court. Uh, they asked me what a term was as part of the medical history. And granted, I'm not a doctor. I was looking at what was in the medical, what was uh, contained within the medical records, and putting that in while I was getting off shift at like eight in the morning. I had no idea what it was. I typed it in. I got to the stand, looked like a complete idiot. From that moment on, I realized I don't get, whatever is in my report, I have to be able to define each term that's in my report. I got to know what I'm writing.
1: Exactly right. Exactly. And so when it comes to note writing, I want to touch on something here real quick. Sometimes it's hard when you have gloves on, you're bloody, whatever, and you're trying to write notes. Um, I've done a couple different ways. I've done it myself. A suggestion is you could have a scribe, you know, you could have an officer or another investigator or, or someone in law enforcement there writing notes for you. That, that, Sometimes helps. also using a digital recorder. you can you can talk your way through the body exam. you can get back later. Um, you can use those to, to write your report. and then, of course, in your report, I would document that you use a digital recorder, you transfer those um, to a summary to your case narrative, and the digital file was then deleted for the next use. You always want to do that or you're going to get subpoenaed. So but that's a good way a good way to do it. either use a scribe or use a digital recorder. Some people don't take notes on the scene as well because they're like, I've got on gloves. I've got this. I can't write. If I do write, it, so use a scribe. That's just a kind of a suggestion. Uh, how do you guys kind of go about that? Do you use scribes? Do it yourself? What?
2: I take preliminary notes. Uh, to me, as I mentioned, it's a very important uh, it's an observation of the body. I write the times that I'm doing this, who's present at the scene, who's, exam- who's uh, my witness, And as much as I can, as far as uh, notes, then I supplement this information with my photographs. At the end, right as soon as I remove my gloves, that's when I take all the notes that I can. Of course, um, not that I use it, but to just give me an idea, everybody has a smartphone nowadays. Sorry, People can actually dictate as they're taking the movie. So that would be, you know, ideal for uh, notes, you know, supplement your notes that you have. But again, don't let the fact that you have bloody gloves
1: stop you from taking notes. They're critical. Right, I I, uh, I agree hundred percent. All right, well, of course, this you know we're getting close on our time here. And Of course, this could go on for hours and hours. But I think we've kind of covered the basics of what a body exam is, why it's important, and you know, there's a there's something, Julio, that you you pointed out in the very beginning, and I want to touch on this in the end. You know, why a body exam validates the death investigation and the death investigator. Speaking to that, how does it validate it?
2: Again, the answer was, uh, it's an independent estimation, independent assessment of the body. Nobody else has that. Neither the uh, officers that responded to the scene. Remember what I said, most people will stop when they see a deaf person, they don't want to get close. A number of times we respond to C's when the officer says, oh, there's no medication, there's nothing there, it's it's unexpected. We go there feeling a little bit more comfortable around the dead body. We find a lot of medications, a lot of medical history, and we determine that it was not anything for our jurisdiction. But again, it's what makes the investigator, in my opinion. Yes, we can be great interviewers. We can get a lot of information from the scene. But we're the only ones who have the control of the body at the scene by law. Nobody else can touch it unless us. And the information that we get from the body exam is critical. I give it 50% of the investigation, but death investigation is not more. It is very, very important. That's the validation. And the other thing is we, are, we have that initial information for the time of death. Uh, again, there's a number of emotions, guilt. There's always that question from the family, was there anything that I could have done to prevent this? And we can tell them, no, it, it was something that just happened. There was no one around. The In inspection of the scene, the person, there was no evidence of trouble, nothing like forced entry, nothing. I'm sorry, ma'am, sir, I know you love your son, but this is something that just occurred. In sad cases of suicide, it was their decision. You couldn't do anything. Of course, those are complicated situations, but we can give them that comfort. And, and we're, all, we're all sort of there for that, not just to answer questions, to provide a little bit of closure. And I believe that this information starts that process.
1: Yeah, that's that's very good. And one thing you hit on that, that, that sparked a memory of mine, we are we are death investigators, coroners, medical legal death investigators, whatever name your agency calls you. And we are, by law, the only ones really, by law, supposed to be touching, moving, and investigating that body. And to keep this in mind, on all death scenes, whether it be homicide or natural, the body is the most important part uh, evidence in the whole scene because without the body you can have gunshot holes and doors and cars and walls and you can have blood but without a body you don't have the evidence so so what i want to put into my into our investigators ears out there is the body is the most important piece of evidence at the scene by law You are the only one that is supposed to be touching, moving or interacting with that body. Now, there's cooperation. You bring others in or whatever, but you're in jurisdiction of that. And by you going about it halfway and not doing a proper scene investigation and a proper investigation, you have destroyed or interrupted the biggest piece of evidence at the scene. That's how important your job is, and some people I don't think realize how important a death investigator's job is. I'm not saying uh, other agencies and, and look at us pat us on the back. I'm saying us, as investigators, don't realize the importance of our job, and sometimes we shortcut it because it's like, oh well, grandpa died. Well, no, grandpa died because a grandma poisoned him. You know, and um, we don't, we know we don't if we don't do our job that that can be missed. Uh, Paul, uh, last comments weigh in. What are the importance? Um, going forward here?
0: Well, in reference to what uh, you and Julia are talking about, the most visible role of a medical examiner and coroner's office anywhere in the country is that of the medical legal death investigator or the deputy coroner. They're the ones that represent the office on the phone more often than not when deaths are reported, but more importantly at the scenes and not just to law enforcement and fire personnel, but they're the ones how they show up, how they conduct themselves as the quote, eyes and ears for the pathologist, that they're the ones that are speaking about the office by how they're acting. If they just go and put the body in a pouch and go as the most visible visible form of the office, that's one thing. However, if they go and ultimately do their head-to-toe examination, ultimately interact with families in a compassionate yet professional manner, interact with everybody else at the scene because the media is going to be recording them anyway, they are the ones that ultimately are laying the foundation for how your office is looked at, the information that you're getting, the ultimate end result of cause, manner of death, and identification are all provided by a professional death investigator deputy coroner. So I think that, that is the critical role of doing a good body and scene examination when you get there, when you're looked at, because then ultimately you're going to be looked at, and your office is going to be looked at more than just a body snatcher. You're going to be looked at professional Death investigators who are tasked with writing the last chapter of somebody's life story,
1: right? And if you're a small agency that you're having a, a little bit of trouble getting the um, recognition or the respect of your uh, of your governing body, or maybe funding of your government body, um, become more professional. Um, do a better job. Become more professional. And a lot of times you'll be seen in a better light. And then maybe you will have more respect and or funding. Uh, Funding means more help. Funding means more equipment. But if all you do is go to a scene and uh, put them in a bag and leave, uh, really, how much funding do you need for that? So when you're not doing your job properly, then you really can't justify the need to be seen as a professional organization. And I say that knowing that there are, you know, listeners out there that are in both agencies, agencies where... You know they they they're not as professional, and agencies that are ultra professional. And so we we need to try to all be as professional as we can within our limitations, and then of course grow from there. Well, guys, it's been an exciting conversation. It's something that's very well needed. Um, and I'm and I'm sure everybody got a loud out out of it. I know I did. So um, I'm I'm going to say goodbye here, and and just wish you guys a great uh, a great day, Julio. First time on the show. Thank you. You are now you are now part. You are now a co-host of the Corner Talk podcast. And any time that you have an idea, a thought, or like, you know what? I'd like to do a show on such and so. Send me an email. We'll schedule it because now you are part of the show. So, Julio, thank you very much for taking this time being on the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Thank you. Paul, again, buddy, I'm telling you, you're just, you know, I I need to just just provide you your own desk here in the studio and uh, just have you stay here. But, uh, but, but thank you for joining on. You're certainly a friend of the show. Do a very good job in what you do. And and I, and I don't just say that, you know, at the butt of your cup. I, I hear a lot of other people talking in the, in, you know, this, the world is small, you know, cyber world is small. I get a lot of comments, a lot of people talking. I hear a lot of things. You're very well respected in the industry. And I very, very much appreciate you taking time pouring to our listeners.
0: Thank you, Darren. Thanks for the opportunity. And and more importantly, thanks for everything that you're doing and the shows every week get better and better and better. The information is wonderful and uh, you're an invaluable resource. Thank you very much.
1: Well, I appreciate that. So guys, thank you again very much for coming on the show. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Darren. All right. Well, well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Julio and Paul. Paul's always great to have on. And I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't just buttering his, his, bread or his cupcake or frosting is whatever i don't know i was serious paul does a great job and he's uh you know he's an a- asset that's what i'm trying to get out, asset to this uh, community and so i appreciate everything he does uh, and for those of you uh that's listening on the um podcast uh, you probably could tell remember that i'm doing some periscope stuff periscope being the app from twitter that you can broadcast live and so we broadcast this uh show live And so we don't have a set time and date that I do shows. I do whenever I can schedule and then I pre-record and then I release. So, But what I'm probably going to try to do is in in as much as possible, I'm going to try to put out the mention that I'm going to broadcast on Periscope. And what that does for you, if you have the Periscope app, you can actually uh, log on and view the show. And not only can you view the show, and basically you're just seeing me. You're not seeing the guests that I bring in, but you are hearing them, as you could tell. And you can ask questions by typing your question in on your app. It comes to me. And then I can get your question answered on the show as we go. So, again, thank you all for uh, coming in today and spending some time with me on this very, very important topic. Leave a a, a review in iTunes. Uh, I've read one early on. You know how important they are. And until next week, everybody, be blessed. And above all, what? Above all, be a blessing to someone else. See you next week, everyone.
2: Thanks for listening to
0: Coroner Talk,
1: a DSPN Media Production. Visit our website at
0: coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coronertraining.
2: 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.